today's guest is so verbally dexterous that he has determined that his name can be anagrammed as Daddy Lives in Arabia. Just one example of the often absurdist wit that was evident in his early plays, Funny Mears, Wonder of the World, and Kimberly Akimbo. He has written the books for the musicals High Fidelity and Shrek, and has won acclaim for his recent, more realistic plays, Rabbit Hole, which received the Pulitzer Prize, and this season's Good People. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to spend some time with David Lindsay Abair. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Good people. Rooted in your own upbringing in South Boston, or as we will now refer to it, Southie, as everybody does. Why did you feel now was the time to write about your roots? You'd not taken on Southie before. No, no. Um, You know, I had thought about it for the longest time. Uh, There were a couple things going on. Um, One, I care so deeply about my friends and family that I had to, I wanted to write responsibly about them. And so I did feel like I had to mature as a writer and as a person and uh, get to a, a place where I had a very clear point of view about the neighborhood and what it was I was going to write about. The other thing was I kept hearing over and over again that, um, British playwrights write about class. Where are the new American plays about class? And um, I'm sure there are some playwrights that are writing about class and they're not getting uh, produced for whatever reason. Um, But I thought, well, maybe I should write about class. And and now seems like a very good time, the economy doing what it's doing, Uh, people finding themselves in more and more dire straits. Uh, And I sort of smashed those ideas together. I thought if I am going to write about the neighborhood, class inevitably is going to come up because it was so present to me growing up there. But when you talk about class, it's interesting. On on this program, John Lee Beatty once made the comment that English English writers write about class and American writers write about real estate. (laughs) For Americans, class equates with economic strata, not necessarily the nature of your birth or the heritage of your family. So was it as much class as simply where people are in the economy? Because you've already mentioned the troubles. Yeah, I think it's that actually more, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there is this myth in America that anyone can accomplish anything if they just work hard enough. And I I grew up with a, a lot of people who were equally as smart as I was, um, but did not get the opportunities that I I got. And uh, luck played a significant part of that. Um, And so you talk about, uh, you know, being born into a place or uh, into a situation. I guess that's more the issue. Hmm. I read in several interviews that you've done um, a comment that was made by your one of your Juilliard teachers, Marsha Norman, who said, write about the thing that frightens you most. Right. In Good People, what frightened you that you had to write about? Um, I, I think it was more uh, – it's the most personal play that I've ever written. Um, so I think just writing about where I – came from exposes me as a person, but it also exposes um, the people that I grew up with. And, you know, South Boston is legendary for being an incredibly private community, for better or for worse, historically mostly for worse, with the forced busing era in the 1970s in particular. Um, and, and so that was that was scary for me because uh, for a bunch of reasons. The main thing was I just wanted to do justice. I didn't want people from Southeast showing up and saying, 
that's not it. That's not how it was or that's not how it is. That's not who we are. And uh, there have been enough movies, in particular more than plays, written about the neighborhood and, uh, and people that I know and love have responded to those films and said that very thing. Not everybody's a drug addict. Not everybody's involved with the mob. Not everybody's connected to Whitey Bulger. And of course, those make really great movies. Well, let's cite so people understand what movies you're talking about. Well, The Departed in particular, which I think is a great movie. Um, you know, a lot of movies that aren't actually set in Southie, people assume, like The Town, which is set in Charlestown, and The Fighter, which is set in Lowell. Um, uh, Goodwill Hunting, I think, is a movie that people pretty much like because it's about a really smart person from Southie and um, some really supportive friends around him. But what's interesting, using Goodwill Hunting as an example, as well as good people, part of it, part of those stories is about getting out. Mm-hmm. It's not. It may be true to the spirit so that the people who live there recognize it as the place they live, but there seems to be this desire to talk about those who did get out, those who want to get out, those who can't get out. Right. So I'm curious, as you say, you wanted the people from Southie to to recognize what they saw. Do they also recognize that yearning for something more to move beyond? Um. They do. I mean, I don't want to make generalizations about anyone in the neighborhood. I, you know, there are a lot of people that love the neighborhood and have stayed in the neighborhood who have raised terrific families and have good jobs that have stayed in the neighborhood. So there's, you know, it's not the slums of Calcutta. It's a working class, solid neighborhood. Um, you know, parts of the neighborhood are better than other parts. There are the projects. There are, there's City Point, which is a beautiful part of the neighborhood on the other, you know, down by the water. And so, um, I don't want to say that everybody is struggling to get out of the neighborhood because that's just not the case. I think a lot of people want to rise up out of the the more dire situations that a lot of people were in. Certainly, you know, I grew up, uh, my parents were very working class. My mother was a factory worker for all of her life and my father was a fruit peddler. And I don't know if they strive to get out of the neighborhood so much as they wanted their kids to do better than they did, whatever that means. And so to them, getting out of the neighborhood did sort of mean that. Um, going to college for me did mean that to them. They just want, I mean, like all parents, they want their children to do better. In Good People, do you feel that you've done composites of people you know, or is there anyone who is in some way based on specific characters? No, they're definitely composites. <laughs> so nobody from Southie is going to see it. <laughs> you would be killed. I would yeah. be killed. Uh, well, you know, there is a book, a book that I think is really fantastic, actually, called All Souls, um, which was about Southie during, uh, mostly during the 70s, about a, a family that lived in the projects. And um, a lot of names were named. It's, a, it's not a piece of fiction, although some names were taken out. Um, I love the book, but I know a lot of people from the neighborhood felt betrayed by the book because it portrayed, well, for, I think it told the truth by and large. Um, and But I think people felt like a dirty, dirty laundry was being aired, but also generalizations were being made. I think, you know, McDonald, the guy that wrote it, was just telling his story. So it was very personal and specific to him. But when not too many stories are coming out of, of Southie from people – from Southie, then it becomes uh, that's what Southie is like. It beco- he becomes the the model of Southie, the writer that writes about people from Southie. Um, and so I did have that pressure of being another writer from Southie writing about Southie. No way would I name names. Um, it's not as interesting as you know melding characters together. And I felt the freedom 
to do what I wanted with the characters. But I did keep a lot. Of, there are a lot of Southie names in it. A lot. Of, a lot of my friends from the neighborhood have come and seen it. And they're like, "Oh, you kept all the last names, but changed all the first names." And you know, when you have a very working class Irish neighborhood, uh, Irish names are going to pop up, and they're going to be familiar to the people that know and love those people. Since it's so intertwined, your own growing up in the neighborhood and the play, it, it brings me right to the story of how you began to move out of the neighborhood. You got a scholarship at about seventh grade to seventh start going grade, to yeah. private school. Yeah, that's right. So what was the experience of being of the neighborhood and suddenly every day going elsewhere to when you talk about class, yeah. certainly private school has an intimation of class depending on, on the school itself, right. different than – that's not necessarily just economic because there are families that send generations of to course, the same right. private school. And here's the kid from Southie. Yeah, it was um, very strange and I think defined me as a person, as a writer. It, it, it defined everything about me because I went – I think I was 11 when I started going out to Milton, and I wasn't a boarder. I was a day student. So every day, I would wake up very early and get on that subway and go to the end of the red line and um, from the train, take a trolley to Milton and walk a mile up the hill to the prep school every single Carrying day. Carrying a hot potato that you'd eat for your lunch, it That's sounds exactly like. exactly yes. right. Okay. Um, and, you know, rub elbows with people that were very foreign to me. They were, you know, mere miles away, but... Uh, in neighborhoods that were very different and their parents had jobs that were very different than the jobs that my parents had. And uh, spring break would roll around and they would come back with tans and talk of, of foreign countries or exotic locales where, whereas I would have spent those two weeks watching television in Southie. Um, and so, yes, of course, I felt like an outsider. I felt like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, and then after a couple of years of getting that terrific education and becoming more comfortable in that environment, um, I then didn't feel entirely at home in Southie either. And so it, it created the writer, frankly. I was an outsider in both of these worlds. I had a foot planted in, in each place and sort of comfortable in each location and not comfortable at all at the same time, um, which was very difficult, but also... Uh, made me the person that I am. So where did your introduction to theater come from? Um, mostly at Milton, although there, there, there were some early influences. My uncle was a, a local actor that did, you know, small local productions in Southie or around Southie. And, and those were the first plays that I saw. You know, he was in a production of um, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a production of View from the Bridge that I remember seeing very early. I mean, before seventh grade. Um, and, you know, I did school pageants, and the first play that I wrote was, you know, a very short play in fourth grade for a Christmas pageant. And so there was some theater, but it really wasn't until I got into Milton where I took real theater classes and actually started performing in plays in seventh grade. So what kind of shows were you in in high school? Who would we have seen you as if we'd been there <laughs> at that time? Um you know, I I often got cast as the old man <laughs> in a lot of plays. Um, you know, I was Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet. I was the I, I did um, I, I was the lead in 
uh, Fleener Ear, that Fado farce with the twins, that was the most fun. And, you know, I played the uncle in Arms and the Man, Shaw. And, you know, so we did Shaw and Shakespeare. And, you know, the first, the play that really... I think influenced me the most actually was Christopher Durang's History of the American Film. That's was that was the ninth grade play, um, which is pretty edgy, right? Doing wow. a, a, yeah. a, a rather obscure musical by Christopher Durang in a. You I'm know. trying to work out the, the the premiere date of the play and what year you would have been doing it, but I guess it had already been around for a few yeah, years. Yeah, well, because it, it's it opened. It was originally done in seventy seven. Right. Yeah. No, we in ninth grade. I was it was eighty four. Okay. So it was a few years after that. But, yeah, there was a tradition in the school that every ninth grade did a ninth grade play, and so that was the play that we did. And hmm. we had such a great time that someone said, we should do a tenth grade play, um, and which w- had never been done before. Mm-hmm. After ninth grade, you get dumped into the rest of the high school, and everybody auditions for all the plays. And someone said, well, you're the funny one, so you should write it. And that's how I wrote my first play. After being in Chris Durang's History of the American Film, I wrote a 10th grade play and an 11th grade play. And for my senior project in 12th grade, I wrote my, I wrote my first musical with a friend of mine. Wow. And, and so those were my first plays in high school. And what were you writing about? Oh. Were they just silly comedies? Or did, yeah, you they were, any, did you have anything on your mind? Well, you know, they were silly comedies. In particular, the first play, Mario's House of Italian Cuisine, was essentially a ripoff of Tina Howe's Museum. So the fact that I even knew Tina Howe's Museum tells you what kind of school this was. Clearly. <laughs> it was a terrific school, and gosh, I love that play where, you know, dozens of characters come and go into a museum, and I thought, oh, I want to write a play for 40, 16-year-olds. I'll just sit in a restaurant. So people came, and they did silly, ridiculous things in a restaurant, and then they left. Hmm. But in 11th grade, the play was about this rogue nuclear missile that had been launched and was was headed for this small town in the middle of uh, North Dakota. And it was the last two hours that these people had to live. <laughs> so it was funny, I guess, but also it was about, you know, these people dealing with their own mortality and what to do in the last two hours of their lives. Hmm. So when you went off to college, Sarah Lawrence, did you go to study theater? Was that already a decision or were you still thinking about other things. No, I was still I knew that I wanted theater to be a part of my education, though I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that I would be pursuing it, frankly. And in fact, my freshman year, I didn't take any theater classes at Sarah Lawrence. I auditioned for plays and was I was cast in plays, but I mostly studied literature and psychology and some history and um but got involved with the theater department by acting in plays. And then my sophomore year, I did in fact um starting theater classes, and again, primarily to be an actor, I thought, and to fill up the theater program, I then also took some playwriting classes just to fill up the course load. So this begs the question, when we see Southie portrayed in your play on screen, there is an accent. Yeah. Did you have to consciously lose the accent? Was that a choice that came during private school or once you started acting more in college? Uh, it was definitely gone in high school. Really? Yeah, they were pretty ruthless about it. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, not nobody was mean, but even though you know it was in the suburbs of Boston, nobody had a Boston accent. It was hmm. really odd. And so, you know, I felt so much like an outsider to begin with because, you know, I was the poor kid taking that train every day. The fact that I then talked differently than everybody else, uh, I mean, not that anybody told me to lose my accent, but I quickly started pronouncing my R's. And, you know, I did a lot of theater and speech team in high school as well. And you want your accent to flatten out and, and be able to be a little more um, chameleon-like. Hmm. Uh, but 
That said, I'll talk to my mother and, you know, it will immediately come back. It's not like I have to put it on. It's just like being bilingual. Uh, you know, I talk to my mother. Where's my father? He's out in the garage. He's, he's fixing up the car right now. You know, it, it'll be there like that. The playwriting classes. Now, again, in high school, if you're already aware of Chris Durang and Tina Howe, you're pretty sophisticated. What were these courses? Were they appreciation courses or were they writing courses? Um, in high school, they weren't play. You know, I, I was moving towards college. Oh, in now, college, yeah. they were playwriting classes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. you were really writing. We were, yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but yeah, the, you know, I, I had some great playwriting teachers and who I ignored for the longest time and resisted all the rules that they were trying to give me and, uh, you know, eventually learned them and tried to forget them again. But yeah, they were playwriting classes. So once you got out of school, was it immediately, I'm going to be a playwright? Was that then set or were you still thinking about what your options were? Yeah. No, it wasn't set. I mean, I was in denial about being a playwright for the longest time, actually. and uh, In that you, you felt you wanted to be but shouldn't? That kind of denial or just I, – I don't, I don't know that I saw it as a, as, a, as a possibility. I mean, I say this, but I kept writing plays – I just didn't know any professional playwrights. I didn't know how it was done. I didn't know how one got their plays produced. Um, and so right after Sarah Lawrence, I actually got a job at Dance Theater Workshop as first in the publicity office and then as the associate producer. It's this fantastic avant-garde dance and theater um, space in Chelsea that's been there for well over 30 years. Um and so while I was there, I continued to write plays and I got the dramatist source book and submitted my plays to every contest and development workshop and anything that would accept plays, I would submit my plays. Um, and still, you know, I would perform in other people's plays. I would audition a little bit. I would do readings of my own plays. But it, it really wasn't until I got into Juilliard uh, it was the first day, and, and Chris Durang and Marsha Norman, who, rang, who, who ran the program, said, well, as a playwright, you might find such and so. Or as a playwright, you may encounter a director who does this and that. And I thought, oh, they're actually referring to me as a playwright. And, it, and I swear to God, it wasn't until I got into Juilliard, even though I'd been writing plays all those years, that I thought, oh, oh, maybe this playwriting thing is working out. But you'd also made the decision. I mean, you say got into Juilliard. One has to apply. One doesn't just suddenly get a letter right. out, of, out of the blue right. saying, please join us at Juilliard. Um, so clearly your mind was going towards that, but you felt you needed something more. Right. I mean, I took that job at the theater and thought – if this playwriting stuff doesn't work, look, I'm a working class kid, so there was always a plan B. And I was perfectly happy in my plan B. I was working at that theater and I was getting insurance and it was a job that was easy and fun. Uh, and I thought, if the playwriting thing doesn't work out, I'll be an arts administrator and be perfectly happy and never be rich. <laughs> but I'll never be rich as a playwright either, so that doesn't really make any difference. Um, but still kept, you know, stoking the, the coals of, of the plan A, hmm. um, even though I didn't know it was a plan A. It was, you know, I had a lot of things going on at the same time. So you're at Juilliard. You're being treated like a peer, as you say. Yeah. You are you are in a program led by the man who wrote your ninth grade play. Yes, strange, with, right? uh, Certainly the ninth grade play was not Night Mother. So. It was not. Um, what was the experience of A, being with professional playwrights who you said you hadn't known, as well as simply being with other aspiring playwrights. I think that was probably uh, the aspiring playwrights part was um, probably the most important because, you know, being a playwright, it's such a solitary, lonely thing. You're by yourself. 
Um, you don't know <laughs> the writers. You don't know what it's like. So just to be in a room with a bunch of peers that are in the same exact situation, that are going through the same frustrations, that are submitting the plays the way you're submitting your plays and trying to figure out how they work the way you're trying to figure out how they work. Um, you know, I'm in a writer's group now, and most of it, most of the people in the group were at Juilliard with me. <laughs> hmm. So we left Juilliard and said, what the hell do we do now? We then got a group together and the group functions exactly as it did at Juilliard. We sit around a table and we discuss each other's work. And so that support system was incredibly important. That's not to undermine how crucial and empowering it was to study under Chris and Marsha. Um, as I said, they, they treated us like playwrights and spoke to us with such respect. I mean, they never talked down to us as teacher to student. It was always, here's some stories that we're going to tell you and we're going to ask questions that we ask ourselves when we write our own plays. It was so, uh, as I say, empowering and, and so useful. Hmm. I'm curious. Let's, let's talk about the writer's group just, just for another moment because clearly as somebody who's achieved a level of success, not only with plays but with musicals, you've written films – you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. Why do you need the support of other writers? Why do you need that connection? What does that serve for you? Because somebody from the outside would look and say, he's doing great. Yeah, okay. Um, the short answer is I still have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm not really being funny. Uh, I mean, I hope that I've developed craft over the years. Um I've gotten to be, I think, a better writer. But every time I start a new play, things slip away. You, you know, you need someone to ask good questions. And, you know, if pressed, I hope I could write a good play on my own. But to be in a room with people that speak the same language, that know what it is that you're trying to do, uh, there's nothing more useful to, for them to say, yeah, this is really great and this is this is good. I'm confused. What are you trying to do over here? Talk to me about that because I'm not clear. And just to hearing where they have questions, usually um, they bring my attention to things that I probably suspected were already there, but it's nice to hear, yep, I can't get away with that. They're absolutely right. That's a great question. Um, I just can't write in a bubble. It's it, The back and forth is really important and useful. I mean, I think about good people now, you know, there, there, there are some very specific things. I, that, I brought that play into group three times, and they had very specific questions that I addressed that have improved the play so much. Can, can you give me an example? Yeah, yeah, easily. Um, the 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 character of the, the doctor's wife, I would bring in the play, and they say, yeah, great, the people from Southie, Got it. The poor Irish folk, fantastic. Now, this black wife, what's going on there? Why is she in the play exactly? I'm not sure where she's from or how she's functioning. And she had an argument in the play in an earlier draft, and they said, uh, that feels a little too similar to Mike's argument. It feels like she's just reiterating what he's already said. Is there, is there a way to make her argument more specific to her? Hmm. And so... It was sort of a general note, but her argument got tighter and tighter and became much more an argument of mother to mother. This is an argument that the doctor character couldn't have with her because he's, of course, not a mother. And so her argument is, as a mother, this is what I'm hearing from you. It doesn't make sense to me. Please explain. And it's so gratifying to sit in the audience and... Renee Lee's Goldsberry is fantastic in the play. I think she may get the most laughs in the. She gets so many laughs, and the audience loves that character. 
I, you know, a because of her performance, of course, probably more than anything. But also, they're the uh, she's the audience's way into the play. They she says a lot of the things that the audiences that the audience might be thinking in a moment. Um, anyway, all of that is to say, it's nice that the character works because it didn't work the first two times I brought it into my writers group, and they helped me address it and fix it. Very, very interesting. Now, you'd said that even before you went to Juilliard, you had spent time applying for fellowships and contests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you didn't say whether any of those were successful. Uh, yes. I mean, the one that uh, – the first thing I won was the South Carolina Playwrights Conference, which is sponsored by Trust Us Theater in Columbia, South Carolina, a terrific theater. And they actually produced a play of mine that I wrote in uh, college called A Show of Hands. Um, so, of course, great to be recognized, great to have a play produced. Um, but while I was down there, I met Stephen Belber, who was a playwright as well, who also placed in the, in the contest. And we were chatting and he said, uh, do you know about the Juilliard program? And I didn't know about the Juilliard program. And it was Stephen Belber who told me about Chris and Marsha and that the program was free, um, you know. It was a fellowship, and it was flexible enough that I could keep my full-time job, which I did, and still go to Juilliard. Hmm. I could never have afforded to go to, you know, Yale grad school or anything like that. I couldn't. I couldn't afford it, and so Juilliard was the perfect program. And I would never have found out about it if I hadn't met Stephen Belber. So, I mean, there are a lot of these things that have happened in my career that are so circuitous. It's it's seldom I apply for this and I win it. (laughs) Usually I apply for it and somebody says, well, we're not giving you that prize, but do you mind if I submit your play to a friend of mine at Soho Rep, which is how I got my first play done uh, in New York. Well, you jumped right to my next question. Well, you say your first play in New York with the production in South Carolina. You, that play got do- didn't just win the prize. It got right. done there. Yes, it did. Were there other out-of-town productions before you started to get your work done in New York? No. No, okay. there weren't. There were a so, couple little plays that I had done and way, 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 way off, 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 off Broadway that nobody saw. And the plays were terrible and they shouldn't have been seen. But my first real play was A Devil Inside, which I wrote in college as well. So tell me about the experience of having that first New York production. You said you wrote it in college, so we're a few years beyond that now. Yeah. Um, well, maybe but, it was right after college. I'm a liar. I wrote it right after okay. college. Okay. Yeah. But still – Yep. The experience of you've you completed Juilliard at this point? No, this was before. This is the play it's, that oh, got me into Juilliard. Oh, I see. So, yeah, yeah. so even before. So what was the experience? Uh, well, it was fantastic. The way it started, again, the circuitous thing, I actually uh, used this play to apply to New Dramatists, which is, you know, a great organization of playwrights. And, you know, I had applied many times and gotten lovely notes from either Todd London or... Or Sherry Maggot, who actually Sherry was the lit manager, I guess was her title there. She was the person who said, I'm so sorry you didn't get in, but you came very close. Hmm. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I've, I'm going to pass the play on to Julian Weber, who at that time was the artistic director at Soho Rep. And so Julian called up and said, I love this play. We have this reading series over the summer where we do like, you know, five or six readings of plays or mini workshops. I don't know what they called it. And that's where my play was first done as a workshop. And then the workshop went so well that he said, now we're going to do it as a full production. And so that's fantastic for many reasons. Of course, you want to have your play produced. But, you know, when I was 
you know, fresh out of college and going to see lots of plays downtown and way downtown. I remember going to Soho Rep and seeing uh, David's Red Hair Death, which was one of my favorite plays. And I thought, God, if I could just have a play here at Soho Rep in this like beautiful little theater, a play like that, then I'll be happy. And so when Julian Weber called and said, we want to do your play, I was like, that was one of the things that I wanted to have happen in my career. And it did. <clears throat> The experience for the first time of having a say in casting and being able to choose from presumably a much wider range of actors than you'd heretofore had the opportunity. Well, having a voice in that, was that? Well, I don't know that I had much of a voice in that, honestly. I mean, I was so young and so inexperienced. And so uninformed, frankly, I wasn't yet a member of the Dramatist Guild, so I didn't know all the things that I should have been fighting for. And I was treated fine, but... I also didn't know all of the actors in New York. So I ended up with a fantastic cast, but it was cast mostly by Julian. The greatest thing that came out of A Devil Inside was it was the first time Mary Louise Burke was in a play of mine. That was where I met Mary Louise. And the poor thing was is terrified of heights, and the director put her up in this very tall second-story set of a, laund- a laundromat set, and she was terrified for the entire run of the show. And I've spent, you know, the past 15 years trying to make it up to her by <laughs> casting her in other plays. But that was the real um, gem of the show. That was the best thing for me to find her because she then went on to do several others in my plays. Well, then I'm trying to get the chronology clear. If that preceded Juilliard, yes. um, how quickly did Funny Mears have? Were you at Juilliard with Funny Mears? I wrote Funny Mears at Juilliard. Uh-huh. That was a play that I wrote at Juilliard. And then was Manhattan Theater Club the first production of it or was – It was, there- yeah. premiered at Manhattan Theater Club. So right after you finished Juilliard, you get a show at Manhattan Not Theater exactly. Club? Not exactly. We actually did a workshop production, a really amazing workshop production actually at Juilliard with the third-year students. So that mm-hmm. was that was the first production. It was obviously a workshop production. Um and then I submit, here's another circuitous story. I submitted it to Manhattan Theater Club for one of their fellowships and they called and said, you're not getting this fellowship, um, but we would like to do a public reading of this play because we like it so much. And so they, they did a reading at stage two at City Center with their subscribers and it was a fantastic reading. To this day, maybe the best reading I've ever had, frankly. And they said, went incredibly well. We're going to try to find a slot for it next season. You know, I was like, holy cow, I might have a play done at Manhattan Theater Club. And then they didn't find a slot for it. I hmm. don't know why that didn't work out, but it didn't. And that summer I went up to the O'Neill with it. I submitted the play to the O'Neill. And um, Christian Parker, who was the uh, literary associate at Manhattan Theater Club, brand new, saw it at the O'Neill and went back to Lynn and said, oh, I just saw this great play at the O'Neill. And Lynn said, oh, right, we were thinking about producing that play. Um, let's, let's, what about this season? And so they picked it up for the following season because it, it did very well at the O'Neill. So really, yeah, it went from Juilliard to the O'Neill to Manhattan Theater Club. Hmm. And Mary Louise Burke was in that production as well. Well, as you said, you've spent 15 years atoning for putting her up high. Yes. So you had to start right away. Indeed. Um, Funny Mears was very well received and really put you on the map. Suddenly you were a hot young playwright. I was very lucky. Um, what was what was the experience of having your first New York hit? It was a huge relief, of course. And you also get spoiled. You know, when you have a... It was, you know, devil inside a side. It was my first real play in New York. And so to have a really amazing review in the New York Times, like, hey, you know, look at me. I got, you know... I got a great play. Everybody loves me. 
and then we did the second play, which did not go so well, which was <laughs> Wonder of the World, uh, which was a great lesson and important to have failures. I mean, I, I, failure is not the right word. It was not received critically well, is what I should say, and that was good for my ego. Do you feel that Wonder of the World was successful? Or did you think so before you saw the reviews and feel differently afterwards? I have very mixed feelings about it. Honestly, Wonder of the World was actually a play that was written before Fuddy Mears. And so I, in my heart of hearts, I knew it wasn't uh, as accomplished as a play, shall we say. It's a, you know, it's a silly, um, ridiculous comedy that should be done very quickly with cheap wigs and dumb hats and cheap backdrops. Um, that's the play that it was. It was like a collegiate sort of play, and for what it is... But it was given a very polished production. Well, I think that was the problem. I mean, a beautiful, terrific production. The actors were amazing. The director was fantastic. I actually think it was ultimately overproduced for the play. The play itself couldn't support the production. Hmm. And so um, it was trashed miserably. I, I can't even say unfairly. I think the production was not... The play was not wasn't that great in that production but what was wonderful is many years later i saw a production of the play done at barrington stage up in the berkshires and it was hilarious and simple and fast and done with cheap wigs and stupid hats and dumb backdrops and it flew by and it's exactly what it was supposed to be it was done on the cheap and it's like that's what that production is and so it was nice to rediscover that play the play that was you know, uh, I, I I didn't have shame about it. I was like, oh, it's too bad that that wasn't as good as Funny Mirrors. I will insert a brief moment of, of personal note. Um, Wonder of the World was where my wife and I had our first date. Oh. So. See, there are, uh, there are lots of good things about I Wonder of the World. I just thought I'd toss that, that at you. That's sweet. And you're still together? Uh, I said my wife. Uh, yes, we excellent. Are. Um, right. it, Great. We and got through the first date. It didn't. It didn't so there, there we are. Despite the production, you're still married. I did That's not fantastic. say that. You've had some other plays that I see, which we haven't seen here in New York. And maybe these were smaller pieces, but How We Talk in South Boston, History Lesson, Snapshot. These are all yeah, these are all very, very short plays. Uh, uh-huh. How We Talk in South Boston was the only other thing I ever wrote about Southie. And I actually wrote that at Juilliard. You know, it was a 10-page play, and it was, you know, write, write what you know. And it's essentially, it's a it's a 10-page joke about Boston accents. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Marsha Norman saying, that's what you need to write about South Boston. You have to write about South Boston. And then it took me 15 years to do it. But <clears throat> I remember her saying that. And the other play... Um, History Lesson was a commission from uh, Actors Theater of Louisville. They, they do those short pieces with the interns. or mm-hmm. And I think that's what Snapshot is, too. I think that's the same. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because you've also – I noticed you've been involved a lot in the 24-Hour Plays project, oh, yeah, which it. inevitably creates short pieces but really fast. Yeah, I love it. I, why do you love it? I could see doing it once yeah. as an experiment, but clearly <laughs> if you choose to go back as you have, at least, you've done it at least four times by yeah, my count. I have. Uh, so, so what do you get out of doing something that fast? Uh, well, you know, I don't do any drugs, and so it's as close to an, an adrenaline shot as I can find. It's an amazing cause. It's a, a, a great group of people, and it's just tremendous amount of fun. You know, every time I do, I think, "What the hell am I doing this for? Am I crazy?" When four AM rolls around and I have, you know, a page of dialogue, I always rethink it. But uh, it, it, it's always so much fun. It's fun. Does it do anything for you as a playwright to be forced 
to write in that speed? Does it in any way impact your other writing? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, there is something unbridled about it. There's no choice. You have to hand in pages. And it is interesting that when you're writing that quickly and not editing, what can come up? The surprises that you find when you don't live up inside your head, which is usually where a playwright spends most of his time. You can't, you can't live up inside that head when you got to hand in pages at 6 a.m. So mm. uh, I, I've, I've done it a couple times just to, as an experiment in my other writing, and it's interesting what comes out. Next up, after Wonder of the World, Kimberly Akimbo now, and we should say, to be very clear about acknowledging already your third play at Manhattan Theater Club, which really instantly became a home for you. Yes. Um, Kimberly Akimbo also workshopped at the O'Neill. That's where we met. Yes, that's right. You said you were atoning uh, earlier um, (laughs) with Mary Louise Burke. Now, here you wrote Mary Louise Burke, who is a phenomenal and respected and beloved character actress. Yeah. You wrote her a leading role. I did. As a 16-year-old. <laughs> right. What, what, was, what went into that? Was it to think about a part for Mary Louise? Was it the idea of the show and saying, oh, she could do this? Yeah, the part came first. I mean, the seat of that play came when I asked a friend of mine about his newborn niece. And he said, oh, God, she's amazing. She's two months old. Going on 90, she's just this wizened old woman trapped in a baby's body. And I thought, oh, that's sweet and slightly disturbing. Um, And then I remembered seeing a documentary when I was a kid about progeria, which is this disease that ages children prematurely. And I thought, God, is there a play in there? And then I thought, wow, what a great part for an older actress. Uh, and then the play started to take form, and I don't know that I was, I, you know, I was probably seven pages into it, and I thought, there's only one person who could possibly play this part. And that's how Mary Louise came into it, of course, because she's, yes, uh, a seasoned actress, but has such a youthful, young spirit about her that is so timeless and soulful and joyful and everything that you want in an actress. Uh, the play became incredibly easy to write hmm. because of her. As you were writing it, I mean, you've talked about the writer's group. Were there times where you would go to Mary Louise and say, would you just, can we just read this? Did you ever want to hear her voice as you were writing it? A funny thing happened with that play, actually. Um, I, I wrote it, I was briefly in the primary stages writer's group. They had a writer's, maybe they still do. Um, but at the end of the year, they have readings, and I came into the group late, so I only had one act. And so... Um, they said, well, wh- why don't you just do the, f- the first act of the play? And I thought the play was going in a very specific direction. And I thought, oh, this is silly. Why am I going to do one act of a play? And um, so we did, we, did, we did a reading of the first act, and Mary Louise Burke was in it. And T.R. Knight played the boy. There's a 16-year-old boy who sort of has a crush on her. And the audience was so invested in that relationship. I thought, oh, I had no idea how central that relationship was. You know, I, I you know, when I was writing the play, I wondered if I was going to have a clever little twist at the end where she actually isn't even sixteen years old. She's it's all a dream. She's a, she's an old woman pretending to be sixteen years old. But then the audience so believed in it so entirely. I think because of Mary Louise and her and her performance, frankly, they thought, "Oh, this has to be real. This relationship has to be fulfilled in the course of the play." And I don't know that I would have done it if I hadn't had Mary Louise Burke reading the play in front of an audience that way. 
Let's detour into your experiences in the world of musical theater for a bit. Oh, must we? Um, yes, we <laughs> must. Um, I'm curious. You certainly, I mentioned in the introduction, I mentioned High Fidelity and I mentioned Shrek. You've been involved with some other projects that haven't come to fruition. Right. Um, there was Betty Boop, as I uh-huh. recall, that yes, you that's worked right. on. So I'm curious as to... What the experience is for you of working on a musical, you know, when you're a playwright, when you've been writing, you're writing alone and it's you and a director and a cast. Yeah. yeah. Director works with the designers. Musicals involve so many more people. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you feel about the experience of musicals as opposed to writing plays. Uh, well, I have learned that there's nothing more difficult than writing a musical. I will say that. Uh, I've learned so much doing it, and I'm, I'm eager to write another musical. I don't think that I want to adapt anything hmm. in the future. I, you know, never say never, but, um, you know, it's, compl- it's, it's very complicated. Of course, you have a lot of people uh, that are collaborators, and, and I've been very lucky. My collaborators were all terrific on High Fidelity and on Shrek, and... Um, I think the harder thing about doing uh, – obviously building it is very difficult. But when you're adapting something that people already have an opinion about, that's very difficult um, because people walk into the theater with opinions, um, some good, some bad. I mean Shrek in particular, you know, a lot of people of course thought probably what I would have thought if I wasn't working on Shrek. Oh, great, another animated movie being turned into a musical. Whereas other people thought, oh, it's going to be just like the movie. The kids are going to love it. And that's also not true because it's not just like the movie. There are 19 new songs in it and things that weren't in the movie. And so it's very difficult to overcome biases and expectations and all sorts of other things. People do it and people do it successfully and Shrek was successful in some areas and not successful in other areas. But I would love to write a musical where people don't know anything when they walk in the door, like they do with a play. Well, people constantly say it's so rare in this day and age to see a fully original musical, original in the sense that it's not based upon a movie, another play, you know, a book, what have you. So, So it's thinking up a story that wants to be musical. But for a playwright, Do you think in terms of – do you think you're going to find yourself thinking in terms of I want to tell this story, but at a certain point I want to hand it over to somebody who's going to write lyrics and going to write music and take parts of of the writing off my hands? Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I I was only the book writer for High Fidelity. And that was a great relationship. Amanda Green was so funny and is incredibly talented as a lyricist. Um, but I have to say, I did the lyrics for Shrek, and the process was totally different for me because in High Fidelity, I would write up to a scene and say, okay, guys, you go do the fun part. Or I would write a scene um, that Tom and I would be like, oh, what a great scene. Let's turn it into a song that would then, by design, of course, be pillaged and turned into the meat of a musical, which is always the song. So it was much more satisfying to me as a writer to write the lyrics as well. Mm-hmm. And also there's a seamlessness that happens from book to lyric when it's by the same person. That's what I think Amanda and I did very well, and it's hard to tell where where, where one began, the other took, took it. Um, so I, I don't think that I'll write a musical without writing the lyrics. So it, all the words will be yours. Yes. Again, never say never, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I think I'll do that. But again, you're, you're right to say you have to wait for a story that actually should be a musical. That's the trickiest part, right? 
does this story actually sing? Look, why are you making a musical of that? Um, and I think, you know, I, I think Shrek was uh, ripe for a musical, actually. I think the internal lives of those characters are so big and complicated that I think it was a good idea for a musical. High fidelity, maybe less so, ultimately. But it's interesting. You mentioned internal life, but I wanted to ask you about high fidelity because when you talk about people having expectations or preconceived yeah. notions, I had read the book. I'd yeah, certainly yeah. seen the movie, but I have to say I was always fonder of the book than uh-huh. I was of the movie. The book is entirely and in, almost entirely an internal narrative right. by the lead character, right. which strikes me as a particular challenge to then externalize. Right. So, okay. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there I mean, it is. that said, that part's not so hard for a musical to do. You know, mm-hmm. characters are often turning to the audience and breaking into song and saying, they can't hear me, but I'm going to tell you what I really feel. And so that, I think, uh, could have lended itself to, uh, I think the harder part, well, there are many harder parts, uh, you know, the book and the movie are both about music that everybody knows and has a very ha, they have a very specific response to those iconic songs right also it didn't help i have learned that the character was an asshole he was incredibly unlikable and when you're up inside his head in the book i think you're a little more forgiving than you are or in a movie when you zoom in on that lovely face of john cusack who's so winning and remember him from all those other movies where we liked him so much you like him because it's john cusack when you're on a broadway stage it's difficult we can't do a close-up and we can't literally go inside the characters heads the way you can in a novel so who knows why it didn't work maybe none of those but that's interesting because a a novel certainly we have many novels with flawed narrators yes whether you want a musical with a flawed a flawed central character yeah it's a challenge you can but you know it's it's It's, harder it's tougher right i mean very interesting now after well really right around the same time as high fidelity is rabbit hole yeah which i don't even have down which came first in terms of actually getting on stage, but but they were both Rabbit within Hole the same was on year. First, okay, it was on first. Um, it is often commented upon um, that both good people and Rabbit Hole have a naturalism, yes, which your previous plays had not evidenced. That is true. Um, had, did you make a conscious choice to write in a different style, or did it simply happen? Uh, it was a conscious choice, but I had been thinking about writing a naturalistic play for a long time. I just had to wait for a story that I cared deeply enough about to make that the play that I wanted to be a naturalistic play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of it came from a very cynical place. I've, I've done very, very well critically by those absurd comedies, But, uh, and I read all the reviews and I shouldn't, but I read them all and I'm curious and I've learned a lot from reviews. But, um, the folks that dislike the comedies dislike them with such an unbridled passion. Like, I I rarely got a middling review. I either got a rave or a pan. And that was pretty much how it was with those comedies. They either loved me or, God darn it, did they hate me. And so, I would then read these same critics that disliked those comedies, and they would write about naturalistic plays in a completely different way. Whether the play was good or bad, they were more respectful of the writing, and it seemed more accessible to them. I, I, I don't know why they wrote the way they did, but you know, the cynical part of me thought, I could write one of those damn naturalistic domestic dramas if I wanted to. 
but then I, I had to wait. Mm-hmm. I, if I only wrote a play out of spite, it would not have been very good. Um, and so I went back to I, Marsha's advice at Juilliard. The, here's the thing: uh, when I was uh, when my son Nicholas was around three or four, um, we had heard like two or three stories of friends of friends who had children die very suddenly. Hmm. And before I had a son, you know, Marsha had said in Juilliard, write about what frightens you the most. I didn't know what it was. And then when I heard these stories about children dying, I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is what Marsha was talking about back in Juilliard. This is the thing that scares me the most. And that became the seed of the play. And once I had the seed of it, I thought, wait, is this that naturalistic play that I've been trying to write? Give it a go. Just as an experiment, let's see what happens if you try to write a naturalistic play. And I love a lot of naturalistic plays. It's not I didn't have anything against them. Um, a lot of them I really loved. And so it was an exercise, and I stretched muscles that I never had before. In some ways, it's more difficult to have to obey such strict rules. In other ways, it was incredibly liberating for me as a writer. And uh, anyway, it was great. Fun, <laughs> actually. And great fun with such a, a serious and and you know a harrowing experience for the characters and even even for the audience. It's a tough play. It, yes, it is very difficult, so, but not without humor. No, that didn't no. go away. But mm-hmm. yes, yeah. The experience of that being translated to the screen, yeah, because movies, well, certainly movies, movies don't do absurdism usually, though there are absurd movies, but naturalism can be you can achieve such reality right. when you're on screen what was the experience of rabbit hole translating to the screen did it give you more opportunities with the story or was it simply a case of retaining what you had and translating it to another medium no more the former i wanted to make sure that i didn't lose the heart of the story that worked i i, I hope worked well on stage but at the same time i knew that i i did have to reinvent this story for a different medium because it's a you know it's a it's a medium of visuals. You have to tell a story through pictures as much as you humanly can. Um, you know what? What Rabbit Hole had in its back pocket that not a lot of, not all plays have. Let's say is a fairly extensive offstage life. And so, yes, the play itself took place inside that house, and it never left the house. But we heard a lot about offstage events and support groups, and we hinted at the fact that how we may be having an affair. And, um, you know, the, the, the screwed up sister gets into bar fights and there's a scene where, uh, Cynthia Nixon's character talks about having this event at a, at a supermarket where she gets angry at a mother who won't give her child fruit roll ups and she slaps her. And so when I, when it came to writing the screenplay, I thought, oh my gosh, I can actually go to all of those places that I talked about in the play. And the fabric of the story became so much larger. I mean, it's still, it's still a small, intimate movie, but boy, it gets out of that house a lot. And the thing that's hinted at for the husband's character, this affair, became a, a backbone of the plot of the movie. It became a parallel storyline where she's forming this relationship um, with the teenage boy that hit her son. He's, he's uh, flirting with this woman that he meets, the Sandra O oh character in, in the support group. And they go on these very parallel journeys. So whereas the play was more about um, the mother, the movie is actually about more about the couple, actually. Hmm. Interesting. This begs a question, which is, in terms of the major plays, Funny Mears, Wonder of the World, Kimberly Akimbo, Rabbit Hole, Good People, they are all 
focused around a central female character. Yeah. Do you have any idea why you've chosen to write women in the central role and have not written a male central role? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there, there are a couple things. The main reason is, honestly, I just know a whole lot of really talented actresses, and most plays are written for men. And so when it comes time to write a play, I, I think about the story that I'm going to write, and I think, does it does it matter if the protagonist is a man or a woman? And if it genuinely doesn't matter, I just make it a woman hmm. to throw another part on the other side of the scales because there are so many parts written for men. Uh, if I had a therapist, and I don't, I'm sure they would give you a different answer. Um, and that, of course, is my mother. My mother is an incredible storyteller, is the center of every family event, hilariously funny, funny deeply soulful and emotional and, uh, of course, shaped me in my life. It makes sense to me that my plays are peopled by the kind of women that my mother is. Hmm. Though I don't think about that when I'm writing, but then my sister will come see the play and see all sorts of things, not just my mother, but often she'll be like, oh, there's Matt right there, and do you think Dad's going to be upset if he sees this part over here? <laughs> hmm. And so, I mean, I'm not as aware of it. Good people, obviously, I'm much more aware of the influences of my friends and family because it's, uh, it's about Southie and more personal. You talked about Rabbit Hole and that there was so much offstage life to the characters. Is that something that exists as well in good people? Again, with since you're you're now in in the realism phase, perhaps in the absurdism of the earlier ones, it was primarily what was on stage. But have you imagined more of these people's lives than you actually put into the play? Um, more than imagined, I know it because it's my neighborhood, and so. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these characters—you've you've been very clear that yes. these characters are amalgams. Yes. So. Is there, you know, if you were, if you had the opportunity to look at good people in another medium, television yes. or film, right? Is there more to the story that you would tell or show? No question, there is. Um, uh, I mean, so much so that I, I know I have another, I have another play about Sally that I'm writing, and one of the characters is referenced in the play, and I know, you know. So funny, stage management at Good People sent me a list just two days ago of all the offstage characters that are mentioned. And there are like 53 offstage characters. You know, some of them are just in passing. And of course, inevitably, this is about a gal from a neighborhood who sees a guy from the neighborhood after 30 years and they talk about the old neighborhood and what happened to Cookie McDermott and what happened to Johnny Duggar and what happened to all of these characters. Um, in my head, I know who all of those people are. They're not specific do not specific real people but in my head i know who they are and should i have to open it up and turn it into a movie or a television series and that might happen uh, it wouldn't be too difficult for me to do it you could become the brian freel of southie and southie is your bally bag god that'd be a great thing <laughs> for all involved well David, thank you for spending the time and uh, look forward to visits to Southie and elsewhere in, thank you. in future plays. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today for Downstage Center. Thank you for having me. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at John Kilgore Sound and Recording in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, at as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.